Did anyone uh, see the supermoon this morning? Anybody? It's the closest the moon is all year round, and uh, beautiful. I, I wake up early and start walking uh, uh, just about every morning while it's still dark, and, and uh, the moon was just beautiful. seen a lot of beautiful things this week, but I'm not sure that any of them as, as beautiful as what we just experienced, the body of Christ singing to the risen Son of God. Oh, my. I know that it just sometimes seems like Sunday morning church. It's not. In the eternal perspective of things, this is the body of Christ, and we're singing before the Lamb of God. I don't know about you, but I have um, uh, a bad dream once in a while. I'm sure you do. And uh, th- this bad dream is recurring. And this uh, dream is, I've heard other people have similar dreams. Now, some people have bad dreams, and they're running from something big and bad and scary, and uh, their legs won't, you know, operate. Their mind is engaged, and, you know, I'm sure some of you have had that dream. Others have had bad dreams that they're shopping at, in the grocery store, but they're, uh, they got everything except their clothes on, and, uh, you know, they wake up, and it's, it's a bad dream for some of you. It would be a really bad dream, um, and so I know it would be for me. But my recurring dream is that I'm in my final semester of college, and it's about February or March, and I, I, uh, there's one math course. I don't know why it's a math course, but there's one math course I haven't finished. And in my, I, I literally wake up sweating because of this unfinished course. And I'm like, ah. Oh. And then in the dream, I'm like going to teachers and say, I promise I'll, I'll really kick it in here. And, and I'll, I promise I'll just do extra work because I've got to graduate in May. And I, I can't graduate without this math course. And, and then I wake up and then I go to my office and I dig out my degree, which is in some box somewhere that I don't hang on the wall. I'm like, okay, I just, it was just a dream. Because unfinished things, they feel so crummy. I mean, there are famous people who have unfinished business, like Mozart, his requiem. He didn't get to finish it. Someone else finished it for him. Franz Schubert, the the famous Eighth Symphony, is actually named the Unfinished Symphony. It's not because he died. He had six more years to live. He literally, Schubert, liked to hang out in Starbucks. He was a coffee bug. He just would sit around and not finish stuff. There's a lot of unfinished stuff by Schubert. Uh, Da Vinci, you know, I don't know if you know about the Gran Carvala, the, the, the great horse, the big horse, but he was commissioned to do this bronze sculpture of this very large horse, and the way they did it was they'd build a clay one first and get everything right and then cover it with bronze. That's the process. So he made the big clay horse, and then Italy went to war with France, and they needed all the bronze they could get to make cannons, and he never got to finish the Gran Carvala. It feels horrible, I think, crummy to have this sense of unfinishedness in our life. Lowe's Hardware, by the way, will remind you of this if you've ever been driving down the street and seen this billboard, unfinished products. There's just something in that unfinished billboard that kicks into the heart of a man like, oh, man, that's right, I didn't get that done. And it certainly kicks into the heart of elbowing wives who said, yeah, I've been telling you that for eight years. We find ourselves today on the final day of creation because we have been going every week. We've taken one day of vacation in a collection of conversations that we've, been, we've called Fingerprint. 
And the reason that we've looked at these conversations, for those of you coming in to this on the bottom of the ninth inning, is that we believe that when you look at the days of creation and you see the fingerprint of God, that is, the unique characteristics and the attributes and the personality and the actions of God, that we learn who God is. And if you're going to be a follower of God, it is just a, a standard baseline to want to know who He is because once you know who He is, then you can do what He wants. Then you can follow Him with more passion. You can follow Him with more uh, intelligence. You can follow Him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, like Christ encourages us to do with all of our strength. We've also seen that in these days of creation, the attributes that we're learning about God not only stop there, start there at the beginning of creation, but they're followed through through all the pages of Scripture. We saw, for example, that in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and He distinguished between light and darkness. I was thinking about that this morning. I thought God could have obliterated darkness, but He didn't. He kept darkness around. Jesus said, the weeds are going to grow with the good plants, and it's something that we ourselves have to distinguish darkness and light even in our lifetime. So God set something forth that He distinguished between light and darkness from day one, and that attribute, that characteristic of God has not stopped, not only through the pages of Scriptures, but the pages of our lives. Now, beginning on day three, you'll notice that God does something at the end of each day. You see, when things are not complete, there is that crummy feeling like, ah, I got to get it done. It lingers and looms over our head. But on the other side of the coin is this. Physiologically, we are told that when we complete something, when we check something off the list, that there is a shot of endorphins that takes place in our brain. I, on the Meyer-Briggs test, score as a J. That means I'm a list person. I have lists on my calendars. I have lists in my cars. I have lists on my computers. I have lists in my books. You'll see any book. Look at the back flap. There'll be a list of different series and collections we can do, a list of to-do lists. You may find a grocery list in the back of some of my books. And man, when I check it off, it's like, pow, you can feel the endorphins. Like, man, that feels good. At the end of day three, God looked and he saw what he had done. He said, and he looked and it was good. And you can almost feel these spiritual endorphins in God and say, oh, that was great. Let the water separate from the waters, and it was so pow. Oh, that was accomplished. Let the land appear so that vegetation can appear, and the land came up. It wasn't that the seas subsided, but God did it opposite. He did it supernaturally, not naturally. And when that happened, he must say, oh, man, I got that done, and it was good. And then the, the vegetation, the, the trees and the bushes and the plants began to reproduce themselves according to their kind. And you got to know in that moment that there must have been endorphins flying in God's mind because he created us in his image. So he's, he's wow, that's happening. And let the sea teem with living creatures. And he's, when he spoke it, it's all these creatures and whoo, I just wish I could go out to my garage and say, then let it be clean. Because I'm telling you, <laughs> endorphins would be going all over the place. At the end of the sixth day, 
God didn't say it was good. He said it was very good. But when he came to the seventh day, he neither used the word good nor the words very good. He used a different word. He used the word holy, sacred, set apart, unique. I invite you to begin reading with me in Genesis chapter 2. Day 7 lops over in from Genesis 1 into Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we begin in the very first verse. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, finished, in all their vast array. I love that sentence. I mean, if you were God for a moment and you were just to look at the animal kingdom, I mean, from the skeeters to the kangaroos, I mean, certainly you would say, wow, wow, that's finished. And then if you were to look at the vegetation, the beautiful trees, the magnolias, the rose bushes, the palm trees, I mean, things that blew, the jacaranda. I went past a jacaranda uh, not too long ago, and it just looks like fireworks. And you must have, if God just looked in Eden alone and said, wow, the vast array. Not to mention the Milky Way galaxy and those billions of stars that are beyond the Milky Way. If you're God, there must have been endorphins in this moment. And so the seventh day in verse 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, and here it is, and he made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, when you bring up the word holy, if we took a survey of this room, we would have different concepts of what it means because the word holy means different things. For many, if I said, you need to work on your personal holiness, people would think, okay, there's certain things that I'm doing that I need to stop doing. I need to, as the New Testament would say, rid myself of certain things. The, the New Testament says, Paul says, rid yourself of malice, of anger, of slander, of different things. Certainly, that is a form of holiness, of saying, I'm going to be as those who are getting baptized today. I'm dead to those things. I repent. I turn. In regards to the Sabbath, the seventh day, when Jesus showed up, he was regarded unholy because he did certain things on that day. And the religious leaders said, no, holiness is omitting things, of getting rid of things. And Jesus said, not so fast, there is another angle of holiness. It's not only what we don't do, but it's what we actually do do. It's actually the things that come out of us that make us holy, the things that were the actions that we take. Jesus said, I want you to rethink what this is that you're learning here with the Sabbath. And I would say this as we begin. The Sabbath is holy not just in and of itself, the rest part of it. It's the rest part that's attached to the completion of of everything that's come before. 
Let me say it a different way. Holiness is also wholeness. We're told in the New Testament, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when I read that verse, there's a big fat uh-oh that comes up in my mind. Did he say perfect? Yes, he did. But not perfect as in sinless, but perfect as in whole, as in complete, because God is complete in that sense of perfectness. Jesus is saying this, look, don't be fooled too much about just that the rest was sacred. It was that I had completed the work. When we find one of the Ten Commandments that speak about this seventh day, the Sabbath, watch how it's attached. Exodus chapter 20, verse 9. Six days you shall labor, watch, and do all your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. My proposal to you today is that although holiness has different angles, for us to live a sacred, holy life, there is an angle of holiness that I believe the Scriptures will give us insight today that it is about completing the work of God. It is sacred. When we're reading this, uh, this, this seventh day, there, it reminds me that throughout Scripture, we are told that there are times where God said, I've been working toward this moment to complete something, and now that I'm finished, I'm going to take a little break. You remember, Jesus went in to the temple, and he sat, and he watched. And then at the given time, he stood up, and he went to what we would know as a pulpit or a lectern. And he was handed by an attendant the scrolls of what we know as the Old Testament Scripture book, the book of Isaiah. He stood up, and Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, began to read from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End of quote from Isaiah. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and said, I'm going to take a break. And he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture has, is fulfilled in your hearing. Finished. It's complete. Spiritual endorphins. The moment that many generations have waited for is done. Now and only now am I going to sit down. I didn't sit down before I came, but I'm here now. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, Christ in the flesh, releasing prisoners, giving freedom. And now he says, I can sit down. Christ on the cross, the Lamb of God, the only one in all of human history because he was sinless, was nailed to a cross. And in that moment in John chapter 19, when he had received the drink of vinegar from the soldiers, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, it's attached to the that. The that is a big deal. 
the work of Christ. Every year, the high priest, year after year, came and offered the sacrifice. The problem was the high priest was a sinner like you and I. Now Christ, the sinless high priest that we sang about earlier, was on the cross. And only then, he said, it is complete. The spiritual endorphins of heaven must have exploded in that moment. And then, and only then, Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. One more. At the end of the book of Mark, in the last chapter, chapter 16, Christ is coming back. He's come back. Did I say coming back? That's the King James. He had coming back. He hath coming back, thou brethren. Sorry. He came back from the dead. He appeared to those that were around him. And we read in 16, uh, chapter 16 of Mark, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to his disciples, he was taken up into heaven. And at that point, he sat down. He said, I finished my earthly pilgrimage. Thank God. You see, there are times when we're reading these, these this passage about the Sabbath, think, oh, good, he's going to talk about rest. Because I need some. I was going to talk about overload because I am. No. Sabbath is attached to the completion. And once that job is completed, then the Sabbath becomes sacred. You see, there are people, I know, you probably do too, that would like a Sabbath every day. Like a seven-day Sabbath followed by another seven-day Sabbath, and we just Sabbath all the time and just take it off and take it easy. It's not that way. In Proverbs, we read the season of Sabbath and the season of work. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. A sluggard, a lazy person, does not plow in the season where they should be. They just want to take it off. So at harvest time, he looks, but he finds nothing. You see, the reason that Jesus sat down when you read the Scriptures because he had finished that job. The reason he bowed his head and gave up his spirit in that moment is because his work on the cross was finished. The reason that he went and he ascended into heaven and he sat on the right side of God was because he had finished the job that God gave him to do. Jesus fully well knew that he just didn't come down for a vacation in paradise, that every day wasn't just, uh, you know, a vacation or a Sabbath because there were those around us that, dude, you need a break. You're working a little too hard. Take some, get a Snickers bar, do something. And and, and, um, John chapter 4, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, teacher, rabbi, Jesus, eat something. For goodness sake, take a break. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, did he slip by McDonald's and we didn't get it? I mean, could he, someone have brought him food? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work, and then I will take a sacred Sabbath, and only then. Only before then would be premature. My proposal to us today is this, that God has given to us a sacred assignment to complete on earth. We looked at a few weeks ago that the assignment was different for different ages. The nation of Israel were to keep the word of God, which they did, by the way, a stellar job of preserving minutely the words of what we know as the Old Testament Scripture. A marvelous job. In that way, 
And, and with that angle, they actually accomplished exactly what God had wanted them to do with that task. What I would propose to today, today is that we have a sacred responsibility. And holiness is attached to us during this time, which the, the Scripture calls day. We're in the day. The night is coming. The daytime to accomplish that plan. But that plan comes in advance. You see, God is not a procrastinator. He's not like when he, cre- when he called uh, Moses, it's not like he was like, oh, man, oh, uh, let's see, uh, give me a second, I need an iPad. Um, I-, I called Moses, I-, I flamed up the bush there, uh, he, was, uh, he was already doing some work, but I called him out, and, and now I-, 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 I don't know what to do. I don't have a plan. I got to come up with a, a, a plan. I'll ask him just to lead people out of Egypt. Didn't happen that way. I'll remind you again that God has told us that before the, the foundation of the earth, that Christ was slain. He looked at an angle that none of us can see into humanity before the sea teemed with living creatures, before the land showed itself, before vegetation grew, before he breathed into the the nostrils of man, before any of that happened, before the foundation of the creation of the world, God said, I got a plan way in advance of what was needed. You see, it's kind of like football. When by the time a quarterback places his hands under the britches of the center and hikes that ball, there's been a lot of planning that's gone into that. There's been spring training, spring camp. There's been coming through the summer. There have been preseason games. There's been X's and O's and in some locker room and some classroom. There have been films that have been watched of how the defense is going to uh, operate. And then they hike the ball and there's layers going on. There's that fake thing they do, you know, where they turn around the runner like, I'll take the ball. And then, you know, he acts it and then he hides it behind his back leg. What's that called? A bootlegging or something? I don't know. Whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah. What is it? Play action. Wow, cool. All right. Uh, yeah, it's play action. And, uh, you know, he goes, and then there's a guy, a tight end maybe that looks like he's going to catch the ball, but, you know, he actually is not the real guy. And, like, maybe a fake over to that side. And, and then, but then, you know, he sees the real guy. But then there's pockets of defensive linemen and or, uh, offensive linemen, and they're, like, creating a pocket so he's got time. And, and, and so many layers that all these X's and O's, the plan happened before they hiked the ball. And they turn around, the guy turns around, and he hides the ball, and he gets it. And, and um, didn't know if you know, but it's not official. It's a Nerf, whoa, it's a nerf ball. And, and he gets it, and he sees Trey Bowling out there in the side. And he passes it, and he goes right to him, and he catches it. And, I mean, the crowd just goes nuts. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And then when it all happens, we say, we completed that play brilliantly. Not because they did it like we did when we played pickup football in the backyard. You know, we'd huddle up like we were somebody, like we knew what we were doing. And, you know, when it was my turn to quarterback, I'd say, all right, guys, you ready? Yeah. All right. Somebody get open. All right. Frick. 
you know, we'd always do that to make it sound really cool. And then we'd hike the ball, and it was just like scrambling gerbils. And anybody that was open, we'd just throw it to them. <laughs> it doesn't happen that way in the real world. And it doesn't happen that way in the kingdom. You see, the plan that God has given to us has been planned well in advance. Listen, that amps up the sacredness. Why would you say it amps it up? I'll tell you. When we accomplish what God has already planned, it's holy. You see, my kids now, my two boys, are in the mode of earning money and working and earning, and it's a good lesson. And so I'll say, look, I just don't say to them, hey, go find a job and I'll pay for it. As if my eight-year-old would take all my pennies, I keep them in a jar, and say, come back to me and say, hey, Dad, you know, because I pay him a dollar an hour, child labor, uh, pay him, and, and I came back, and Dad, I've been at this thing. You had hundreds of pennies. Oh, I know. And, and what I did, Dad, I worked for, for eight hours, and I took all your pennies, Dad, and I put them in chronological order. You know, like a gleam in their eye, like, what do you think, Dad? I don't care. I could care less what order they are in. Versus me saying to them, I got a lot of weeds out and back. And I'm too busy, <coughs> lazy, to get to it. <laughs> now when they come in, they're sweaty, they're hot, I'm not and they say to me, hey, Dad, go out and look at the back. And I look, and it's all clean of weeds. Sacred moment. As a parent, it's an endorphin moment because I had planned for it. I've got, the pro oh, I got a lot of projects planned for these kids. They're getting old enough now. Woo! <laughs> and they're planned. If I looked out on the first five minutes and they were sitting down premature, not a good thing, not sacred, not holy. If they came back and even though I gave them the assignment of weeding the garden and they came back with the chronological order of pennies, not sacred. You see, God says, look, I got a plan for you. And it's not random. I'll remind us that Jesus prayed in John 17 and he says, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. The Apostle Paul said something similar in Acts 20, 24. I consider my life worthless, nothing to me. What if I inserted the word plan? I consider my plan, God, nothing to me. The thing that I wanted to do. I just wanted to sit on the street corner, play guitar, and sing worship songs. How do you like that, God? You see the pennies in chronological order? And God would say, no, that's not the, that's not the complete work I gave for you to do. I consider my, my life, my, I almost said wife, whoo, that's a tough one. I consider my life worth nothing to me. <laughs> Back up the tape and delete that part. If only I may finish the race and complete the task. No. 
complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. Perfect picture, promised land. God said, I'm going to give you that land. I'm going to give the Israelites a land. Don't worry about it. I got you covered. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to do all the work for you. So I'm giving it to you. So we sent spies in. You remember that? To, to do some intel. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 2, some, send some men, God said, to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. But the vast majority came back with their own plan, and it got real unholy real fast. It happens when we insert our plan. Jesus said these words in John 6, For look, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Here's where it gets tough. Are you ready? We as Christians are wonderful at doing a plan that we like to do. Good things. Maybe actually day six, very good things. But unless they're aligned with God's advanced plan, listen, they're not holy. They're not holy. It's as if I'm a quarterback and we've done all this pre-planning and I drop back and I say, okay, 27, 8, 4, hot potato, Mr. Potato Head. I throw that in. Sad, hike. And I hike and I run back and I get the ball and I say, okay, Trey Bowen, here it comes again. And instead of a football, I throw a bat. And, and this is what you're going to hear. I mean, you see, that doesn't work in football because when it hits the ground, plays over, right? I can't make up my own plan. And it's so easy to do with all the good Christian things that are available to us at our fingertips. I had a very good friend. He died two years ago. One of my closest friends, early, died in his 50s. He loved God. He studied the Scripture into the wee hours of the morning. I don't know any one, maybe two or three people in my whole life forever that knew the Bible as much as this guy. Did he love God? You bet he did. Never darkened the door of a church. Didn't want anything to do with it. So God would say, okay, okay, I, I, I'm glad you love the, the Word of God, but it's unholy. You think, unholy to study the Word of God? No. Unholy because it's incomplete. Now, some of you are going to say, really, again, it's important. We review what the job is. Love God. Love people. Tell others about Christ and make disciples. Now, you say, well, how about spiritual warfare? How about the Holy Spirit? How about the Word of God? comes all integrated into that. But if you want to pare it down, the task is love God, love people, uh, tell others about Christ, make disciples. Now, when God says love people, what that means is not just be a loving, nice person. My friend was very nice. But that means getting close to sheep who smell bad and to get close enough to them to, 
to learn how to be and not just learn how to do. Not just drop off a can of pork and beans on Thanksgiving Day and walk away. That's easy. And God would say, it's unholy because it's not complete. Getting close to people, the one another's, forgive one another, carry one another, carry one another's burden, bear with one another. I mean, just stick hot and, and, and white hot with one another in the context of the body of Christ. So my friend, I'm like, yes, you love God, but according to the scriptures, not really loving God people? How many disciples have you made? How many people have you shared all your vast Bible knowledge with? And I say it respectfully because I've fallen into the same many traps saying, this is what I'm going to do. And God goes, no, you got to sync with the plan that I've given to you. We're playing football and not basketball. Oh, I've planned it out many, many years in advance. See, in Ephesians chapter 2, We read that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. He did not ask the nation of Israel to go into the world and tell others. He didn't. He didn't ask them to make disciples as we would know it today. He saved that for us. That's your job. Finally, let me say this. It is easy... To, to, to pick and choose. If we say, look, I'm, gonna, I, 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 I'm digging love in God. Man, I love the worship time. Uh, getting close to other people, I, I don't know, man. I'm out. I, I, I'm good. I, I got some peace from Christ. But to step further into the body of Christ, to get in a small group, to, to, to begin to grow relationships small, I, I don't know. And God would say to us, no, 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 look, I'll remind you that Jesus said, I completed the work. That's how you're glorified, God. Paul said, look, I finished the work that the Lord Jesus gave me to do. There's no greater example than the nation of Israel when they're crossing into the promised land. God said, look, I'm going to give it to you. Moses can't cross in, so the next one in line is Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, he begins, God speaks to Joshua, and he says, look, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you, Joshua, and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place you set your foot as I promised Moses. Now he told them, when you go in, you got to drive out all your enemies. Because if you don't, there'll be a consequence. We find that in Numbers 33, verse 55. But if you don't drive out the inhabitants, Joshua, of the land... And those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. That hurts, by the way. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. Well, guess what? They went in and they say, okay, we got the conquering part. We got armies. But the whole clearing out part, uh, I'm not sure. We're going to pick and choose which part of the plan we're going to do. Hey, I'll love God and tell others about Christ. I'm not sure about that loving part and, and making disciples. Or I'll make disciples and love God, but I'm not getting close to anybody. Oh, that'd be hard to make disciples and not get close to anybody. But you get it, right? I, I got A, B, C, and D, and I only want A and C. So what happened is the armies marched into the promised land. They conquered. But in Judges chapter 1, Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined, their enemies, to live in that land. 
nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Katron, uh, whatever, who remained among them. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Acho or Sidon. And because of this, the people of Asher, the Israelites, lived among the enemies, the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out the, those living in Beth Shemesh. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, that's the Israelites, not even allowing them to come down into the plain. So because they chose to say, I'm only going to do part of the plan, there were major consequences. Let me give you a few examples. Here's the trickle-down effect. These Canaanites are the ones that said, hey, we have a king. And so the Israelites said, well, let's, we got to have a king because they got a king. They were influenced by them. These Canaanites are the ones that brought down the wisest man of the earth, Solomon. He followed the Canaanites and boom, he just followed their ways. He married their women and just things got worse. By these same Canaanites who they didn't kick out, they didn't clear out, they caused them finally to accept their ways and drive them out. Let me tell you something. It gets a little harder right at this point. When I look at the condition of the church in 2013 in America... The consequence that we face, the diminishing voice and the lack of our, and the, and the behavior and all the things, are, sometimes our laziness and all that, I attribute that to the incompletion of the plan. I like loving God, I like loving people, but that whole thing about making disciples has been off the radar for hundreds of years. And now we are feeling the consequence. Most intersections of ugliness that I face in the church world, I'm telling you, I walk away and say, well, that's only because they've never been discipled. Because someone somewhere said, ah, I don't like that plan. In the summer of 1978, for some strange reason, I decided to take a summer school course in college, sophomore year in college. I took American history, which I hated, and we were going to do all of American history in uh, three weeks. We were in class for hours. My teacher, Dr. Thelma Biddle, she was about four foot two, eyes are blue, and back then we could smoke cigarettes in the classroom. I was a smoker, so I was, I was into that. The idea of having a non-smoking section in a classroom is stupid. There's no other way to say it. So if you're a smoker, Dr. Biddle was a smoker. She's about this high, and she bought the extra long cigarettes. You know what I'm talking about. In addition to that, she, ha she bought the extra long plastic filter that would house the extra long cigarette. It was a sight. Not only that, she smoked it like a Russian spy, underhanded. <laughs> and usually she blew it right in your face on purpose. At the end of the first week, we were going we to have our first of three exams. They counted a lot since there were only three. We had covered in one week the Civil War, the Industrial Revolution, and World War I, that's a lot of info. Dr. Biddle informed us, here's how the test is going to roll out. I'm going to, you take all the notes that you have of these three topics and study them. 
And I'm going to write on the board two out of three of these, and you pick one and write on it. So I said to myself, I'm going to out-strategize the old Russian fox. And what I'm going to do is study one of them intensely so I'll know everything about it. I studied the Civil War. You know where this story's going, don't you? <laughs> I came into class that Friday, and Dr. Biddle <sighs> walked to the board. I was hoping for a C for Civil War. Nope. And I, Industrial Revolution. Oh, I got one more shot at C for Civil War. W for World War II. I could feel the sweat beads come up on my head. Like, what am I going to do? I had no other option. Now watch. I had worked very hard, very hard at my plan, at my selectivity, of which part of the plan I wanted to do. So I thought to myself, she's old and she's, she's nice. I'm counting. No, I don't know her only a week, but I'm thinking she's, she's like a grandmother. She's going to be nice and forgiving. I forgot about the Russian spy part and that part of my thinking. But, so I took the test. I mean, I just aced it out with everything I knew about the Civil War. Monday morning, hand out the test. I, I made very good grades in college. And then, but then that moment, I'm thinking, dude, if I could nail a C on this, I would just take that mercy any day. Didn't get the C I'd hoped for. I thought, all right, maybe a, maybe a D. That'd be deflating. Nope. Didn't even get an F. L0. Because I had not completed the task I was given. I went to her afterwards and I said, so, <coughs> Dr. Biddle, <coughs> she's blowing smoke in my face. What can we do about this? She said, it's too late. I said, you're mean. No, I didn't. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like, <sighs> blew it right back in her face. No, I'm just kidding. She said, if you make an A on the next test and an A on the next one, which would be really tough, I'll give you a D for the class. I went from that moment to the registrar and dropped the class just like that. When we stand before Christ, in that flash of a moment, we will realize it's over. There is no more opportunity for sacred work. I, like you, hope at the end of my life I can say these words like Paul, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my life has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight and I have finished. Now, if you don't mind... I'm going to sit down and take a break. That, my friend, is holy. It's holy. Today, we celebrate the only two sacraments, sacraments of the church. 
baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a sign that it is finished, that your life previous to Christ is now buried, and it is time for you to sit down and bury it to the, to the past, only to be raised to the endorphinized, risen life of Christ. We celebrate today the Lord's Supper. It is a visible sign that it is finished, that there is no more need of a Savior. Christ, once and for all, said, I will take the entirety of the sin of humanity and lay it on myself, the perfect Lamb of God, and say, it is finished, thank God. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper, don't miss it, are viewable. They're not some invisible sense of holiness and sacredness. They're viewable for us to touch, to feel, to taste, to celebrate. I'm telling you, for those believers who say, I don't want to just sink with the plan. I want the whole enchilada, baby. I want, I want to love God. I want to love other people and get close and get over my apprehensions and get over my fears and step into the sheep poop. Yes, you can say it in church. And get close to other sheep. And I want to tell others about Christ. How could I not? I was with Brian Yost this morning or this week. Oh, what an incredible plan, most intelligent plan of reaching those without Christ in what's called city commit. Oh, just amazing. Love the plan. But the final one, I'm telling you, golly, it's tough. Make disciples. I want the whole enchilada. And for those believers in Christ, when I see the walking full package, and see them work, visibly working at all those, I'm telling you, I think to myself, wow, that is holy. It's not just about what we don't do. I'm telling you, it's about what we do do. Let's pray. Father, we're so apt, God, as sheep, to wander into actually good things at times, God. To involve ourselves, Father, even with very good things. Today, God, you teach us a dimension of holiness that we can easily walk past the holiness, the sacredness, the wholeness of completing the task which you have prepared in advance for us to accomplish. Today, Father, I pray for your church, for us together collectively, and for us individually. God, that we would sense the crushing momentum of time running out. 
that we would live in the Spirit with spiritual endorphins, so to speak, of knowing like Paul, knowing like Christ, that we are completing the work, the assignment that you've given us to accomplish, not in part, but in whole, because that, Father, is where we find it to be sacred. God, today, we thank you for finishing the work. We thank you, God, for not doing it half-baked. Thank you for a sinless Savior, not one that had just a little sin, but a sinless Savior who makes us the righteousness before God. Still amazing. It is sacred, God, today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it is sacred because you've completely finished your work. And so, God, we ask now that you bless this time. You bless the bread, the juice, God. But bless the sacredness, the sacredness, God, of what it means. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.